welcome to Abbey Archives, a Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what age like fine strawberry might. Why? Yeah, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> let's, try, let's try that again, please. <laughs> Take three. <laughs> Click. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Abbey Archives. A Redwall reread featuring one pagan and one Christian going over the series to see what age like fine strawberry wine and what age like milk. I'm Kit. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Izzy. I use she, seer pronouns. You can find us and content for the podcast, including art and links to other Redwall related things at Abbey Archives on Twitter. And small side tangent here, but <laughs> I realize when I'm reading this, like I, my brain is going to the... um. Like PBS, like, you know, funding for this program came from <laughs> such and such foundation and viewers like you. That's like what I feel like I'm slipping into when I do the intros. Fun- it's funding like for this program comes from the fact that Kit and Izzy both do artwork. Yeah, for... we do commissions. <laughs> and that is how I pay for the hosting fees. <laughs> the hosting right. fees aren't that much. It's like $25 a month, but. Okay. Yeah, it's not too bad. Um. All right. Today we're covering book three, The Warrior of Redwall, from chapters one through 14, parenthesis, Brian, Brian Y. Y. Um, I, I don't, don't know why in doing this, this book and in Mossflower it's different. Yeah, I don't think he does this in any other book, though. Not that I can uh, remember. Like, I have Marl I mean, Fox we're gonna sitting out, next but... to me, so let me look at Marl Fox. Yes, I still need to mail it. Don't judge me. Silently judging. Um no. <laughs> Let's no, but here. like I remember, I read Matimeo, Matimeo, blah, 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 Matimeo. I read it not too long ago, and it wasn't like that. Yeah, it's it's in. Um, I think it might only be Redwall because in Marl Fox, which is a much later book, like book two or Act two, as it is in this book, it goes from chapter thirteen to chapter fourteen in the second part. We're gonna chalk this up to book one weirdness, then probably. All right. And speaking of book one weirdness, we're going to jump to the content warnings, which include ableism, sanism, unsanitary conditions, on-screen death, bodily harm, siege warfare, snakes, or one snake specifically, (laughs) racism and native stereotypes, and confined spaces and drowning. Like, I even got pretty squicked out by that scene. Adding body horror. Yes, body horror definitely. Yep. Um, God, body, body horror, horror definitely. Yeah, this is a like, bit of a body horror filled like end of the book. Like, it's like it, he lulls you in with like, oh, the first two halves are very traditional, and the third half he's like, bam, here's the horrors of war. <laughs> yeah, basically. And then like we're gonna get into this later, but then he just doesn't do anything with the aftermath of it and how it affects people. Mm-mm. And their lives uh, I mean, afterwards, like, we, like motherfucker. We do, we do have the direct sequel, Matimeo, but it does. It's like so long after that. Like most of the worst fallout has already occurred. Yeah. Like people have had time to recover. But, but I mean, just kinda... specifically in this book, it's kind of like okay. We win! Haha! Big party! Basically, get married, and... have babies. The end. Yeah, it does that, and like, okay. The, We're um, kind of putting the cart before the horse here, though. Yeah, but I want to get this idea out of my brain before I completely forget it, because ADHD. Okay, the, go the, ahead. The Hunger Games books are not the 
best dystopian YA novels, obviously, but they are one of the better known ones. And I will give credit where credit's due. In the last book, in the aftermath of everything that happens, the author gets shit right. Like, the characters are suffering from PTSD. They're just trying to live their lives, but they are... They're not unhappy, but they're not happy. And they're just existing and surviving Mm -hmm. and working together to work through their traumas. And that is something that... Why I still like that trilogy is Mm -hmm. because of how it ends. And Brian is just like, nah, everything's fine. Last chapter, everything's fine. Feast, babies, marriage. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Fucking God! We're gonna get into it. (laughs) Like, I feel like I I have no opinion on the Hunger Games really either way. I was, I feel like I was too old for it by the time it came out. Because, like, my, my, uh... Oh, yeah, because you you, were probably, like... like, Um, the Bubblies series... The Ugly Series? The Uglies, that's it, thank you. Yeah. Oh, I read the Ugly Series too. Like, I got very into dystopian YA fiction, like, even before. It's like, Hunger Games kind of kicked it off. Like, it was, it existed, because we had, like, the Ugly Series and a few Mm -hmm. other, like, either, like, one-off novels or short series. The Ugly Mm -hmm. Series is really the longest. It was Um, the one that I definitely got into the most, but I think that's because me and, like, a friend of mine, she was really into it, and that's what got me into it, because I very much looked up to her, like, oh, you're the cool person. (laughs) But Hunger Games put that kind of, the, that, uh, type, like, that genre into the limelight, and then we Mm -hmm. started getting, you know, the garbage. It's, it's kind of like the Divergent series and size very heavily. I feel like that was like the perfect storm of like Harry Potter was having its big like movie yeah, this was surge towards too. The, also, this was like the last book I think was either just mm-hmm. coming out or had already come out. And everybody so was, you know, vacuum. displeased with the end of the book, which is one of the reasons why <laughs> I think that's why the end of the Hunger Games trilogy really stuck with me because I was like, this is what Harry Potter did wrong. Mm hmm. This is what they did wrong that Hunger Games got right. And mm-hmm. also, um, fuck TERFs. Actually, fuck turfs. no. Okay, so there's another name for them and they're called Farts. Yeah, Farts! Yes! Oh, I love it. Which is, I love um, seeing that when it passes around. What, oh, what does it stand for again? Feminist, uh... Feminist Appropriating Radical... Uh, transphobes. Transphobes, that's it. Yeah, feminism appropriating radical transphobes, and it's very yes. fucking funny. Please call them farts. J.K. Rowling is a fart. Yes. In all <laughs> senses of the word. Yes. Um. Anyway. But yeah, it was the perfect read storm a lot of like of books. Yeah. The books were ending. There was like the 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 vacuum of like, well, we need the next thing now to get people to spend money again. So. Hey, people like this, you know, dystopia stuff. Let's play with that. And there know. is a um, Sarah Z. I think did a video on the Hunger Games recently, and like just dystopian YA fiction in general. Mm-hmm. And Sarah Z. She has opinions. They're not bad ones. I don't agree with all of them. <laughs> but that video was very, very good. <laughs> so I highly Sorry, recommend. Like, she has opinions. <laughs> Listen, it's, they're not bad. They're not bad opinions. It's just kind of like mm, I feel like you're missing some nuance here, kind of vibe. Yeah. Because, eh. but that video is very, very good because she understands 
the nuance of dystopian YA fiction and how it affected mm-hmm. queer kids and girls. Mm-hmm. Like young teen young to older teenage girls. So mm-hmm. like I highly recommend that video if you want to just understand more about what we're talking about in this moment. Because Brian definitely wrote like when Redwall came out, it was a children's book. But honestly, like and you can still find it in the children's section of mm-hmm. bookstores, like and used bookstores. This is a young adult novel. Yeah. These are novels, and they are definitely way more... Like, yes, the themes are pretty simplistic. They're very black and white. But with what is contained... Because, I mean, even dystopian YA fiction, and most YA fiction is very black and white as well, with very simplified Mm -hmm. themes in that way, because, like, you're a teenager, and nuance is hard. Mm -hmm. Your brain is still developing. It's still hard. But, like, your brain's not done cooking. (laughs) So, like... The Redwall series, honestly, should be considered young adult fiction. Mm -hmm. And so it falls into this in a similar way. Like, if you want to understand, like, young adult fiction and how it affects the broad mimetic psyche of teenagers. I feel like it was also the time it was coming out because, you know. Didn't the first book come out in, like, the 80s? Right. And I don't even know, like, I'm not as versed in the young adult genre, but I'm not even sure, like, how prevalent young adult genre was back then like it you had books for kids you had books for adults like i don't it came out in 1986 got... yeah this is old redwall is old yeah it's not the oldest series i've ever read no um, <laughs> i mean if you read fucking like i don't even know when like the first Anne mccaffrey book came out or like the first uh, mercedes lackey book but like those are also old Anne's are older i'm pretty sure they were early 70s at least in the dragon rider series um, but I've also read like other early sci-fi's. Like there's this one that I really love called it's like the the Fossil Hunter. It's the Quintagliolo trilogy, basically. But like imagine if this sentient being who managed to preserve their intelligence from the past universe passed through the Big Bang, came into our universe, and was like, okay, now I just have to wait for life to show up in this universe. And they wait and they wait and they wait and they're just like, holy shit, where's the life? And finally they find Earth and they're like, you are the only place where there is life in this universe. What the fuck is wrong with your universe? Everything. Everything. My microphone. Everything (laughs) is wrong with our universe. So it's basically this this creature is, it's godlike. It is not a god. It does have limits to what it can do, but it is godlike enough that it can like, to, to speak to certain species, it will like, use stars to flash out morse code in their languages kind of stuff like that (laughs) and try to speak to them that way but like it would basically it would take things from earth and like seed other planets using things from earth so like some planets have like precambrian some have cambrian-esque species and then like the last one he was able to do was when he knew either the dinosaurs had to survive or the humans had to survive and he was like well humans mammals are the more fragile species so I'm going to hurl a big effing meteor at this planet after I take like a big chunk of the dinosaurs and plant them on this moon that can support life. And the Quintaglios are the slightly genetically modified and then left to run wild uh, descendants of theropods who become intelligent and start their own society, which is kind of Romanesque, I would say, question That's mark, but with a lot wild. more murder. 
you really need to just make a list of all the weird book series that you've read because you have read <laughs> book series that I've never fucking heard of. It's not even in print anymore. You have to buy them used. I mean, um, neither is Animorphs. That's true, but Animorphs you can find online for free. Quintaglios? Uh-uh. Although you can find the audiobooks on Audible, so that's... The fuck know. Audible, fuck Amazon. I know, but I don't know <laughs> if they're on the library one because every time I tried to get the library one, it's like, your card's not working. It's like, oh. Yeah, mine anyway. is like, you have a fucking, like, uh, overdue library fee. And I'm like, how? <laughs> yeah. Banned. Banned from listening until you pay your fines. Right? Anyway, should we get back to the book we're actually supposed to be talking about? Yeah, we haven't even really started. We talked about it a little bit. Anyway, yeah. This <laughs> should be young adult fiction. We really like young adult... Young adult fiction is is weird because, like, I still, to a degree, enjoy reading it because, like, sometimes you just need to read something like that where, like... Something simple. Something simple. Usually where it turns out okay-ish in the end, especially Mm -hmm. since we're going through the goddamn cyberpunk apocalypse. Mm Mm-hmm. Anyway. Redwall is like, this is medieval bullshit. Let's go. Arthurian tales. Anyway. Yeah, magic. No, there is no magic. There, don't you look at me and tell me that Martin appears. Martin, the, this child is a reincarnation of Martin. Don't look me in the eye and tell me there is not magic in this. Reincarnation series. is not magic. It is that cool. It's that subtle kind of magic that permeates everything that you can't control, but it is there. It's the magic that makes fairy tales work. It just. Or, is. I guess. I guess I am. That is okay. You need to read the fucking thing. Okay. We start book three right back in the thick of the siege. It continues into the night and the sound of the batting ram is a constant background noise. Clooney checks on the tunneling project and is less than impressed. He is pleased with the batting ram, though, and mentally promotes Cheese Thief to second in command. What I love is that, like, apparently, like, the little hole that they're trying to dig is just this, like, it's a little hole. It's not a tunnel yet. It's just a (laughs) hole. And it's like, how have they not gotten that far yet? (laughs) They're probably, they don't take it too seriously until he comes around like, hello, I will kill all of you and make your life miserable if you don't. Uh." And then they're like, ah, fuck. Yeah. Um, I like Cheese Thief. I'm really just like, Cheese Thief was neat. He was interesting, but I liked Kill Coney better. Yes, Kilkenny is really, really good. Like, there's this book has a lot of really, really good, like, second-in-command lackey characters Mm -hmm. that just get fucked. Again, it's that thing that Brian does where he gets you to like a character just long enough for you to care when they get killed off. Yeah. Um, Constance, Ambrose, and Basil are all fussing over the Basil. (laughs) Damn British names! It's Basil. Constance? Just remember the great mouse detective. His name is Basil. 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 Basil of Baker Street. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Constance, Ambrose, and Basil are all fussing over the battering ram. Basil makes a lackadaisical comment and is scolded by Ambrose, and the two are called to task by Constance. After they make up, Jess and Sam arrive with the basket, which, for some reminder, for those who haven't listened in a while, it is a basket that was used to... Um, I thought it was a barrel. A barrel. But basically... It is a barrel. It is a barrel. And they got it from the vermin, and now they were trying to figure out how to use it. And with the help of Silent Sam, 
it is now filled with a hornet's nest. A very angry hornet's nest. And if we are going with the context of, like, these are mostly animal-sized animals, that's pretty terrifying. Honestly. Like, a hornet sting hurts when you're human-sized. When you're the size of a rat, that's a lot of... Ouch. Anyway... The second part of the plan involves dumping vegetable oil on the rammers once they drop oh, once they drop the ram. It's not on the rammers, but it's on the ram itself. Yeah. And I made a little note here that like the whole time they were using the battering ram, part of me was thinking like, wow, it's a pity they didn't put murder holes in the gateway. Like I know they wouldn't because it's an abbey. And when they were making the abbey, they probably didn't think of like, oh, someone's going to come along with a big battering ram and try and beat the door down. But like part of me is like, like, hey, Brian, you are clearly a medieval warfare enthusiast. Why are none of them using, like, hot pitch or tar or water to, like, pour down on these guys? That is a medieval siege tactic. You throw boiling stuff at your enemies. Um, no, but again, they're, they're, they're peace, peaceable. They're not right. going to do that. No. No, never. they're going to dump vegetable oil all over the battering ram after they drop the... The The fucking hornet's nest on them. And they do that. Yep. The plan works like a charm. Like they drop it. The the wasps get to work. The hornets rather. And they just really go to town on these guys. Um, And they dump the vegetable oil. So the ram cannot be picked back up. And Clooney is fairly merciful on the team of the battering the batting ram team because you can see like they're all beat up they're not you know they're not well off he's trying not to sit down and it's really really obvious that he got stung on the ass yeah i didn't re- i didn't catch that the first time around <laughs> yeah he's like rubbing at his butt and he just won't sit down and it's like ha, he got stung on the ass yeah <laughs> I just, I don't know how I missed that the first reread through. I guess I was too busy taking notes. Um, but he knows that pushing the matter could cause desertion. The hornets worked so well that seven rats, two ferrets, and a stoat are found dead by morning. He tells the men to rest and eat and goes to plan in his tent. Yeah, so, like, I think one of the reasons that only, so, that like, so many of them did manage to survive is because they all went and ran and, like, jumped in, like, the, like, water. A pond, yeah. Yeah, they went and jumped in a pond and just made sure that, like, they weren't getting stung as much. Because, like, hornets can't swim. Right. But, like, the line, the hornets zinged about waiting for snouts to break the surface. Just, ouch. Yep. Rip and rest. And, like, and on the the Redwall side, the Abbey side, like, they only a few of them got stings and nobody died. Because they all just took shelter yeah. in the, the gatehouse, basically. Yeah. Speaking of the Redwall side, Constance takes the respite to launch a new plan. She crafts a huge crossbow to aim for Clooney, kill the head of the snake, and the army will scatter. She gets the aid of the beaver. They set up to wait until just about noon and both fall asleep. Basically, like, yep. they've got this crossbow put together. They get it set up on the battle part, battle battlements. They and eat lunch. pass out. Yep. And, like, they're and, the only two that know about this plan. Like, Constance doesn't tell anybody else. She only tells the beaver. Uh-huh. And it's I, very I so good. I so the beaver never gets a name. Like, he's so important to, like, so many events in this book and never gets a name. I also love how, like, baffled the vermin are when, like, they... Spoiler, but when they finally see him, they're like, the fuck is this thing? 
Just this one poor beaver. Beavers are technically extinct in the wild in the UK. <laughs> well, they are reintroducing them. Yeah, trying they're, re- they're they're trying to reintroduce them, and it's being but, successful yeah. so far. But they're still not off of the extinct in the wild list yet. Yeah. Um. It's gonna take a, a while for them to get to that point, but. Yeah. Clooney goes to fetch the cart, thinking up a plan using the previously abandoned vehicle. Uh, He doesn't tell anybody about this, though. He just takes a bunch of rats and, like, goes off. Like, we don't know it's to get the cart yet. Yeah. He just Um, goes off. Cheese Thief, left in control of the camp, thinks he's got the promotion and makes rather bold use of Clooney's tent and supplies. Subsequently, he dresses in Clooney's things. And is speared by the great arrow. Great. Great. <laughs> and is speared by the great arrow of Constance's. It's an interesting because a cheese thief's reasoning behind like everything that he does in this tent is like, well, everybody else got to do it. Right. Kind of thing. It's like everybody else got to just kind of take advantage of this shit when Clooney wasn't here. Why Why shouldn't I get to also do it? Like, he puts on, like, the poison tip. He puts on the cloak. He puts on the helmet. He eats, like, some of the food that Clooney left out. Puts his feet up on the table. Like, he's just living it up. He even is like, I kind of wish it would rain so that everybody would be, like, miserable out there and see how good I've got it. Yeah. Like, he's a little shit. Um, And then then, karma comes for him in the form of a great iron bolt. (laughs) That just spears him and kills him, like, instantly. And fucks up all of Clooney's armor, basically. Yeah. Yep. Oh, man. I feel like I knew it wouldn't work. Like, I knew Constance wouldn't be able to kill him. Because at the end of the book, like, it has to be Matthias. Because he's the hero. So, you know, there have to be ways for the other plans to fail. But... I was so salty that Constance didn't get the kill. I know, I know why she couldn't from a story writing p- perspective, but it still upsets me. <laughs> <laughs> like, Brian, good job writing it, because I love the crossbow. I love that he's allowing her to be, like, proactive. But at the same time, it's like, how is he going to sabotage this so she doesn't succeed? And, like, ah, that's how. Yeah. And they only her- got one shot. Yeah, that, I guess, because they probably didn't have any more of those iron spikes, maybe, or the bow might have broken, or the fact that, like, Clooney would be wise to it now, and not really presenting himself as a target, so. Yeah. Hard jump back to Matthias, who is spat out of the cat's mouth almost, almost instantly. The cat is quite offended and demands an apology for rudely jumping into his mouth. Matthias does apologize, and the cat is mollified. I did forget, like, I know, like, last time we were like, oh, there's a cat. I did straight up, like, forget that there was a cat in this book. Yeah, me too. Like, at I all. Don't think, I remember I don't think that he... there was an owl. Yeah. But, like, the cat just is like, oh, I did straight up forget that there's a cat in this book, huh? everyone who's listening to like our earlier podcasts where we're lamenting like what happened to gingerbread's family they're like well here's your answer (laughs) because he introduces himself as squire julian gingerbread he laments how he is the last of his noble line wants nothing to do with the squire title since it's hereditary and what is he the squire of living in a crumbling farmhouse he's very very like snooty and just kind of 
offended. Would the term be loquacious with the way he talks? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Matthias informs him of his mission and Julian says he barred the owl from the barn house. But he will take Matthias to the hollow tree he's living in. He refuses to speak to the owl, though, and Matthias senses the two may once have been friends and decides to keep his nose out of it. And honestly, like, I put a note here that that is the smartest thing he's done in a while. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing to brush your arrogance away, like falling in the mouth of something that could eat you in a swallow gulp. A swallow honestly. gulp. A single gulp. Um, then, here's another one. Julian takes Matthias there on his back and asks him to tell the Guosim they are free to take hay and such from the barn if they'd like. He no longer eats red meat. Now, the image here of, like, Julian just trotting along like a regular cat with Matthias on his back, or Julian walking, you know, on his hind legs, like, it was heavily implied that, like, Gingerveer and his sister and so on did, like, you know, all the other Red Wallers do. Mm-hmm. Um... And just carrying him piggyback style, again, because, like, if we're going with, like, these animals are animal size, which the fact that Matthias could fit in his mouth implies that this is a cat who is cat-sized and Matthias is a mouse who is mouse-sized because he fit in this cat's mouth. So I I just think that Matthias, Matthias, that Brian can't decide what size he wants these animals to be. Um... And, like, it's not a big thing, because, like, personally, like, the more I read it, the more fun it is. Because, like, I don't mind in series like this, where it is, like, it's a fantasy, so I don't mind if things are a little more wibbly-wobbly. But it does still amuse me, like, some of the inconsistencies lead to funny images like this. of this cat, I'm imagining him, like, dressed in, like, a squire's garb, or, like, at least, like, a nice tabard or something. And he's just trotting on all fours with a uh, a mouse riding on his back. (laughs) Um, And then... Here's the note on, he no longer eats meat. I said, I mean, he eats fish, so he does get some meat, but no wonder he's such a pessimistic thing. He's half starving himself. To which Izzy said, <laughs> he probably got sick of hearing his prey scream as he ate them. Izzy! <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, you're not wrong, no. I'm <laughs> not wrong. I'm not wrong at all. But it was just like, oh! <laughs> I also and, want to point out that um, Julian puts a caveat on the Guosim coming and taking things from the barn. They're not allowed to quarrel in the barn. Yeah. They're too loud. <laughs> He's like, I am, I am a nobleman. I have standards. <laughs> um, but speaking of prey screaming as they eat them, he also warns that Captain Snow will most likely try to eat him on sight. But if he doesn't, please tell him that he must apologize first or they will never be friends again. Matthias thanks him, dismounts, and holds the medal aloft, waiting for Captain Snow to notice him. It becomes a game of dodge and weave as Matthias evades Captain Snow's talons, while telling the owl who had sent him and that he wanted a word with him. Um, It's just, I love how Matthias keeps getting metaphorically knocked on his ass throughout this chapter. Like, he was, he was so kind of puffed up towards the end of it, like, I'm going on this big quest... I'm the reincarnation of Martin. I'm hot shit. And then it's like, immediately, he just keeps getting humbled time and time again, where he's reminded that you are still like, you might be like, air quotes, the warrior, but you're still young and you still have a lot to learn. You know, I just, yeah, I like, like the you're, humbling. You're, you're a fucking idiot, you little yeah. shit. Like you've spent <laughs> your whole life 
living in a nice sheltered abbey. Like, you've got a lot to learn about the world, son. Um, living in a nice sheltered abbey, dreaming about being a warrior, but also dreaming about being, like, a peaceful member of the Order. Yeah. That tug and pull of, like, what he is versus what he kind of wanted to be because of how he was, you know, raised and the people around him. Yeah. Um, nature versus nurture. Hmm. Funny how that works for a mouse. Uh, <laughs> so he tells him what Julian said, and Captain makes one more grab for him, then goes back to his lair-er nest, to quote the book. Matthias- he tries to invite Matthias in, and Matthias yeah. is like, mm, No. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. I don't want to get eaten today. I'm not into war. It already happened once. I'm definitely not into it. <laughs> Captain Snow just kind of laughs at him and is like, ah, you're very smart about this. Yeah, you shouldn't come in here. Right. So Matthias waits I for his- I saw through my ruse. <laughs> my clever ruse. Matthias waits for his grumbling to subside and then asks, where is Asmodeus? Snow tells him that he knows where the snake is, but that Matthias will never get the sword back from him. Irritated, Matthias makes a bet with the old owl. Basil's medal for an apology and a promise to never eat mouse or shrew again. I mean, fuck squirrels and voles and the other guys, but no mouses or shrews. Uh, <laughs> the bet made, Snow tells him the adder lives in the abandoned quarry. Because of course he does. <laughs> like, because of course he does. I mean, it, um, it is like a good spot for snakes to to set yeah. up. You know, it's it's got some good sandstone. It's warm. It's sheltered. Nothing really goes there because it's abandoned. And of course, it makes a perfect dragon's lair. I, I yes, I want to read the the way that Captain Snow makes this like promise. Oh, do it. This this oath. Um. So. Matthias, God. <laughs> we apologize, everyone. It's Sunday, and we are still getting our brains warmed up. Yeah. Uh, so, Matthias nodded cunningly. Oh, I don't want to take everything you own. Let's just say that you guarantee to return my medal and make a few little promises. Again, the owl had difficulty in controlling his unbridled hilarity. <laughs> the nerve of him! All right, my little warrior, it's a bet. Name your promises. Right, said Matthias solemnly. You must promise on your oath that if I win, you will never eat another mouse or shrew of any type. Agreed. In fact, I'll, leave, I'll go even further. I promise you that if you defeat that snake, I'll admit I was wrong to that stuffy old cat. I'll even apologize to him on bended knees. So there. On your word as captain, Matthias pressed. The owl held out a wing and a leg as he recited, I swear by my captaincy and by my illustrious ancestors, Nictea and Glacier, that I, Captain Snow, will return the medal and cleave to my oath if you should win against Asmodeus. The owl broke into laughter again. I'm not going to try and do that laugh. <laughs> this is the easiest bet I ever made. It'll be like taking the wings off a dead butterfly. <laughs> I just really like the pose that he does, like with one wing out, one leg out. And I'm imagining his other wing, like, over his chest like he's yes. like <laughs> just the pomp the pompeity of it it's really good and he's not taking it seriously but it is a serious oath mm -hmm. but he doesn't expect M matthias to come back alive at yeah. all yeah he's calling he's collect and not expecting a charge 
pretty much. God, that's a callback. How many of y'all out there know what call and collect means, eh? <laughs> you can still, I think, call collect. Yeah, but not many people probably use it anymore. Uh, you do if you have to call a prison. Oh, that's fair. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell I live in a privileged family? <laughs> <laughs> um, you live out in the middle of fuck nowhere. That too, yeah. I, we don't even have a payphone here in town that I know of. Our town's too small. I think there's still a couple payphones around. But a lot of times you can kind of go somewhere and, like, yeah. use somebody's phone. Yeah, like, I'm sure, um, like, the Chamber of Commerce will let people borrow their phones. Or, like, most of the businesses around here would let you do the that. The library has a phone that yeah. people can use. Uh, Our library still like has that. a fax machine. So does ours. Most libraries still have fax machines. Yeah. I know, because I cleaned <laughs> my li- my local library for, like, two weeks in the morning, and it was actually pretty nice. Mm-hmm. And a lot of government organizations still take faxes for some reason? Oh yeah, the YDOT does. Um, I don't scared understand. the shit out of me one night when I was cleaning and the printer suddenly came to life and started spitting papers out. <laughs> fax <laughs> machines are very outdated. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I mean, so are the people and businesses that use them most of the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I don't, don't even... mean that in a mean way. I don't even know how to use a fax machine i have never used one in my life you're not that much younger than me are you i am 28 and i've never used a fax machine oh my god please all right (laughs) i i had to use one when i was okay so like for some context in 2013 when i was working at office max i had to use one that's different you worked at office max i would have like grown-ass adults like old enough to be my parents or my grandparents come in and not know how to use a fax machine so you're okay (laughs) my mom knows how to use one (laughs) anyway (laughs) snow throws a few more insults at him as he leaves but matthias ignores him back with the shrews he calls them out on not warning him of julian and the logalog deeply apologizes explaining how his volatile people often forget things with their wild way of life they have adhd and they like to fight and they i mean listen I also like to fight. I also like to fight. (laughs) You are valid, and I love you. Um, Soothed, Matthias tells them of where Asmodeus is, his bet with Snow, and Julian's promise of peace if the shrews enter the barn. He asks for the shrews' help, for they would benefit of Snow losing the bet, and asks them to take him to the quarry. And I make a note here that more and more, like, through this latter end of the book... We see Matthias going into Martin mode. Like, the the young kid is slowly being overshadowed by his warrior aspect. And he, like, he can make these speeches now. He can stand tall and get respect. And he's starting to really lean into and understand the part of him that is Martin. Yeah, and it's also because, like... It, at the beginning of the book, he would have been too timid to do this because, like, the stakes weren't the same. Mm-hmm. But now there's not, there's not time for bullshit. Basically, yeah. it's you. We have to do this. We don't have time to fight about it. We just have to do the thing and keep going because if we don't, shit's fucked. Yeah. Like, he, he doesn't even point out the fact that, like, you think that Clooney would leave the forests alone if he got Redwall? No. 
he would definitely go after the shrews and subjugate them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, the shrews turn him down on a technicality. The quarry is past the river and not in their territory. Therefore, they cannot be forced to aid him, nor carry, nor can they force any other shrews. It dissolves into a melee, 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 and Matthias heads towards the river by himself, annoyed and disgusted with the feral shrews and their ineffective union. He even throws like the rock that they use to talk, like the yeah. talking rock. He just throws it. He's like, "The fuck you guys!" and throws it and just yeah. leaves. Yeah. And this is, like, one of those moments where it's just, like, you can tell Brian used to work on the docks. Or, you know, like, spent time as a sailor. It just amuses me very much how he's just like, yeah, they're, they, they have the union. And, like, sure, the rules do help them. But also, like, when it counts, it can also bog them down a bit. Um, Kit literally put a note, like, do dock workers often get into physical brawls? And my only response was Yes. Because, like, I didn't know how much of that was just an old stereotype or an actual, like, I know stereotypes are often born from, you know. I know you, Kit, you've never actually lived on the ocean before. No. You've lived, quote unquote, near it, but Fresno is not the coast. No, we are, the closest bit of ocean is, like, at least two and a half hours away with no traffic. On an average day, it's about three to three and a half hours away. Um, Yeah. And I grew up, like, around, like, the Navy, like, the U.S. Navy. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, um, <laughs> fights happen a lot. <laughs> so Cause sometimes it's like, that's the only way you could solve a goddamn problem. And yeah, like, I mean. Okay. <laughs> like, I, I am definitely not a pacifist. Um, <laughs> uh, we, There's yes. a, a case in point, you threatened me earlier. You, you started it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like, okay, small tangent, but like in Final Fantasy VIII, there's Fisherman's Horizon, which is like, its whole deal is that it is a pacifist community. You cannot get into physical brawls there. And the guy's like, we think we can solve everything by sitting down and talking. And then later in the game, like the enemy army literally just comes in and starts shooting the crap out of stuff. And, um, he's like, wait, let's sit down and talk about this. And the enemy general is like, why would I talk to you? I'm stronger than you and I can take what I want. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but um, mm-hmm. the poor guy, like, he blames Balam Garden. Like, you brought this here. You brought the fighting. And the, the and Squall is like, this could have happened to you either way. And if we weren't here, there would be no one to fight to protect you. Like, he's just, he's like, yeah, like, I don't think your way of life is a bad idea, but there has to be people to fight to protect things because yeah. there will always be people who will want to take things away, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like ideally pacifism would be great. Yeah. But, and I, this is a nuanced and complex thing that in <laughs> the scope of this podcast, I don't think in one episode or one recording, no. I will have time to properly lay out all of my feelings and opinions on this and i'm putting that out there so that people do not misconstrue what i'm about to say humans like to fight and not necessarily in the oh humans are predisposed to war we're quarrelsome creatures because you know 
the way that we interact with each other, particularly in Western society, I'm not going to speak mm-hmm. to other cultures that I don't know anything about. This is Western society. This is what I know of from growing up. And I'm aware that, yes, if you are raised a specific way and you are surrounded by certain, like, things and certain people, you are less disposed to enjoying fighting. And ideally... I would like that in the world because I honestly like yeah I like arguing sometimes and like but I'm not somebody who's who's like I don't like physically fighting people and I don't Mm -hmm. like actually fighting with people like with words arguing is one thing but actually getting into a like verbal or physical fight with somebody is not something I enjoy and not something I would like to do this but there are people because that's how like they have fun with it and I don't begrudge them that. Like, this is why we have fucking wrestling, and wrestling is a beautiful, fucked up thing. Thank you, Greeks and Romans. <laughs> but, like, we are to a degree because of how we're raised and the things that we are, like... Conditioned? I want to say... Yeah, kind of, not necessarily conditioned and not necessarily subjected to, but things that, that influence us as we mm-hmm. grow up glorify fighting in a way that, like, makes us in Western, like, American society more predisposed to enjoying fighting to some degree. Because we don't know how to express our emotions any other way. Also, this is the point where, like, I jump in, like, as the Christian air quotes. um, (laughs) Or not air quotes, but, like, anyway. But, like, it does say, like, directly in the Bible that there will never be peace on Earth. Like, it is literally impossible because, like, we are flawed creatures our souls are not perfect and as such we cannot create a perfect world yeah that's what i was saying like ideally true pacifism would be fantastic but as humans we're flawed we misinterpret things people say Mm -hmm. it's really easy to do that because Especially, like, if you aren't somebody who's very good with your tone while speaking. Yeah. Things you say, like me, because I'm autistic. Tone is, like, the worst thing. I say things, and it'll come out, like, snotty or, like, really, like, defensive or offended or just my tone is bad. And that's not how I mean it. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times I'm shooting for a neutral tone, and it comes out bad. Uh-huh. And, and so it's people even worse over misconstrue text, the so. shit I say. Oh god, it's so much. This is why I really like in, like text indicators, like tone indicators, like mm-hmm. slash J for joking or slash S for sarcasm. Or using asterisks or like emoji yeah. faces and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, although you do have to be careful with emoji faces and I've started using LMAO unironically. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what do you mean unironically? <laughs> so it used to be when you say like LMAO after something, like it was not meant to be like you're actually laughing. It was supposed to be sarcastic, but now I'm like using it not like that. I'm using it the way that like I did when I was a teenager. <laughs> it's all a circle, squirrels. It's all a circle. Uh, uh, it is a circle. And speaking of a circle, let's circle back to the book. Um, how's no. that for a transition? A. Hey! Um, <laughs> Never. Anyway. The, <laughs> <laughs> the Vervin camp is in a state of confusion and dread over Chief Thief's situation. They wait for Cleo to return, not touching anything. They basically is... they just they leave they leave the tent. They leave Cheese Thief, and they're all just yeah. off to one side. Like, let's not. 
it's it's very justifiable. It's like you know what, <laughs> y'all y'all are okay. I don't blame you at all. Yeah, basically, Constance Clooney is yeah. terrible. Constance realizes her mistake upon seeing Clooney return to camp. And I'm really glad that, like, she gets to see him come back so she knows right away that it didn't work so that they didn't, like, prematurely do any celebration or she didn't announce, like, hey, I killed Clooney! And then had to go, like, wait, no, he's still alive. Um, fuck. Yeah. Uh, Clooney... Let Constance say fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Clooney figures out what happened and gets an idea to spin it in his favor. He tells it like this was all part of his plan. Clearly, Cheese Thief was a traitor planning to take over the Horde, and Clooney was so clever as to trick the Red Wallers into killing Cheese Thief for him. I love that, like, he hollers at Constance, like, thanks for your help, and he's, like, so far away that Constance is like, what? And, like, the little, the little note where it, um... Constance could not hear a thing from the distance of the ramparts, which was just as well in the circumstances. Yeah. Like, you know if she'd have heard it, she'd have just, like, launched herself over the ramparts just to take him on one-on-one. She would have um, just absolutely mauled him. Yep. He then gets a report about a clan of dormice some of his horde found while scrounging for dock leaves. About 20 in total. He wants them kept alive and tells them they will do as he says or be taught what violence really is. Scum Nose and Mangefur are set to watch them. And part of me is like, why the hell weren't these little idiots already in the Abbey? Like, have they not seen what's been happening? If they live right there? Oy, oy. Um, Clooney... Maybe they thought they were safe because they were hiding. I guess. I, I guess... mean, it took them this long to find them. Yeah, I mean, like, throughout the series, I think we see that, like, dormice or, like, certain kinds of mice are, like, more reluctant to go into the Abbey and tend to just hunker down. Also, you know, come to think of it, like, this is a British thing, too. Like, don't, doesn't this happen a lot where, like, actually, I shouldn't say this is just a British thing. Americans do this, too. But, like, like this is my home. I'll fight to the death to defend it, you know. Or, like, I'm safer here where I know the land and can hide kind of a thing. Well, okay. So that is an interesting phenomena. Because we have been taught as people to stay in place and wait for instructions. Oh, that's true. Like, think about all of the drills that you did in school for, like, tornadoes, uh, bombs. Earthquakes for Californians. Earthquakes. You hunkered. School shootings. You hunkered down and you wait for instructions. Mm-hmm. So the dormice hunkered down. Yeah, that makes more sense. Okay, Clooney is annoyed at the death of Cheese Thief, but comforted that he now has three options to crack open Redwall. The tunnel, the rat plan, and the hostage dormice. You keep uh, spelling dormice wrong. Oh, dang it. No, not I, spelled no I, had it, I had it spelled dormice. Freaking Google Docs went and changed it for me. Like, oh, No, I just did that because it's not no. spelt like that. What? It is spelled D-O-R. Oh my God, I hate the English language. Yeah, it's bad. Um, anyway, <laughs> the attack resumes. The attack resumes and the defenders can feel something isn't right. It's too lax, not aggressive enough. They wonder what the other, what other schemes are being put into motion and also muse on what happened to Matthias. Abbot Mortimer speaks up for Matthias, saying he has a feeling he will be the salvation of Redwall. With nothing more to do, they continue to pick off the horde. 
Like, this is a scene where they're just up on the ramparts, and it's, like, all of the, like, main captains that we're seeing picking people off and just chatting about this. Like, mm-hmm. they're like, why is this feels weird? I don't like this. Where is Matthias? Evan Mortimer is just like, I'm sure that he'll be back soon. He's doing something important. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah, he is, but he's also having a bad time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his bad time is Matthias makes a lonely, miserable camp that night all by himself. But he's sh- angry, upset, just like, I'll do this by myself, I guess. Yeah. Fuck the Gusim. Like some friends they are. <laughs> Uh, uh, shortly before dawn, he realizes the Guosim have joined him. Going back to sleep, he awakens at full daylight to eat breakfast and hear Logalog's apology. Matthias says, rules be damned. Are they with him or not? And, like, it did take him a while, but at least they did finally join up with him. Um, says your notes. Um. Yeah, it just, they, they, like, listen, okay, I've talked about it before, <laughs> but, like, the Guosim are a union that are also anarchists. <laughs> it takes them a while to make a decision for good reason. They have to make sure everybody's on board. They have to understand everything that could go wrong and everything that could go right and make sure they understand the risks and rewards. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times when you have to get something done very quickly, that process doesn't work. No. And it's unfortunate because the that process works for things that you don't have to make a split second decision on. Yeah. And the Guosim almost completely fucked every everything by doing this. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing though is like he wakes up f- at first and realizes that there is another blanket on him because he's not freezing to death. Mm-hmm. And then he just is like, ah, go back to sleep. <laughs> then yeah. he wakes but up again. And now it's gets time an to get apology. Back to it. Yeah. Yeah. Gets an apology from Logalog. Logalog is just like, we find, we made the, we, the majority vote. We decided to come with you. I'm really sorry that we did that. Can you forgive me? And Matthias is like, let's just forget about it. Yeah. Are you guys with me or not? And Logalog is like, yeah, we are. Absolutely. Tooth and claw. <laughs> they break for lunch and the Guo and sorry and oh God why did they have the, it's called the Goosim and then you use a character named Goosim Brian I don't think that's actually her name I think Matthias just started calling her that okay well I think it might be like implication that she's kind of sort of a leader maybe and that why she is Guosim anyway they break for lunch and Guosim explains how Logalog got his name passed down generation to generation by being fairy shrews. It does something very stupid. Yeah, she calls out the log 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 and he scolds them for this, pointing out that Asmodeus had been that way not four hours before, showing a big track in the mud that they should have seen. Upon crossing, they decide to spread out the shrews to spy for his arrival and track him back to his lair. And they have such a good time, though, on that, like, fairy log that they're on. Yeah, like... Like, they go fishing. Matthias is just like, oh, this is actually kind of nice. Yeah, Matthias is like, this is really cool. It's it's like it's his first time seeing, like, an actual really big body of water, too, if you think about it. Yeah, and then shit goes fucked real fast after they get on the fucking shoreline. Yeah. 
Because uh, they spread out like that, like you were saying. They spread out. Matthias is in the middle with Gusim and Logalog flanking either end. Mm-hmm. And after a few hours, I think, yeah, um, like uh, a shrew comes and gets Matthias, and like as Matthias and this other shrew are moving through, like all the other shrews start following. Because he, find... he breaks into a run because he realizes, you know what, something has gone wrong. Yeah, and they get uh, to Gusim, who is in fucking shock. Complete and utter shock. Like, she can't talk, like, not even say anything. She can't say what happened. And so they have to dunk her in the river to get her talking. And apparently, Asmodeus had passed by and took Mingo the Shrew. Yep. And I have a note here that I'm surprised he even got a name because throughout Redwall... The shrews are kind of the red shirts of the Redwall universe because there's so many of them that they are extremely expendable. Yeah, to be fair, shrews do have a lot of babies. In oh, their yeah. Life. Yeah, yeah. Like more than like mice and other like creatures. Yeah. She does manage to point out where the attack happened and they see Asmodeus' trail in the grass. The trail leads to the quarry. Quarry. It's both. You're correct. I know, but in this case, it is a quarry. The trail leads to the quarry, and they decide to scope it out the next morning. They pass the night uneasily. Because it is, it is dark. Yeah. It is dark. They cannot see the bottom of the quarry. They, It is sinister. They don't know where Asmodeus could be. Um, Just they know if they try to go in there tonight, they will all die. Yeah. So they're like, we're going to camp out here. They had left the other shrews, like, to go camp, like, elsewhere. Um, and basically just leave them behind. Because when morning comes, they're like, let's just the three of us go into the quarry. And we'll yeah. leave them there. The other shrews just don't really come back up for the rest of this Not, for a while. Because, yeah. like, they don't realize, I guess they don't realize they ventured into the quarry. At all. I bet you Guosim or Logalog to give them a heads up like, hey, we're going in, you stay here and like keep watch, keep guard in case things really go sideways. Yeah. That's probably. What I imagine. But like it's not a thing that's explicitly said, so I'm of the mind that they're just like, mm, they'll know what's going on. This is fine. Yeah. And it's like they won't, but okay, I guess. Not like we're camping right at the edge of an extremely dangerous creature's lair. Nothing <laughs> can go wrong with this. Absolutely nothing could go wrong here. So, a full morning is spent in a fruitless search only for Guosim to accidentally find it after they had a quick lunch. She quite literally falls into the hidden entry to Asmodeus' lair. Also, I forgot to mention, there is a very old, outdated, and racist term that pops up that I have never actually seen before. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, again, I grew up on the West Coast. I, I did hear- you, like, I would have thought you would have seen this, though, living on the West Coast. No, like, uh, sitting Indian style, yes, I absolutely did hear that all the time, especially in grade school or, or kindergarten. We had one teacher who, like, if we weren't sitting cross-legged, she would go, naked little Indians, and we'd have to cross our legs. God. <laughs> Ma'am, uh, hello. That's, that's bad. Yeah, um, very- um, and of course it was a white gal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of course it was. But like when I saw this, I'm like Indian file. And like I did a quick Google and it's an old outdated way of saying single file because the, the legend goes that the 
the hunters would walk single file or like the war bands would walk single file. So you couldn't tell how big their, their number, how many of them there were. And I was like, which I don't think is actually true. I know. I don't think it is. I mean, like the thing is, is you can't just make a general sweeping statement about all native Americans like that because they all had very different fighting styles. Like, a Comanche would be on a horse. You couldn't ride single file like that on a horse, you know? Or, like, if it was a, an East Coast tribe, they would have all the, the forest cover to use, you know? It's like... Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, it's just, it's old, it's racist, it's outdated. And, again, like, I never saw it until this book. Or if I did, it was not something that really registered in my brain because I only saw it in passing. Um yeah, it's very, very outdated. It's similar to saying sitting Indian style. Yeah. It's outdated. It's racist. Like, uh, now you just say single file or crisscross applesauce. Mm-hmm. Which, crisscross applesauce sitting... is so much better. <laughs> and it's cuter. Uh-huh. And, like, also, or you just say sitting cross-legged. Like, yeah. Like, why it needed to be, like, stuck to, a, like, a specific group of people like that. And he keeps bringing it up in this book. Like, this book has so much, like, Native American imagery in it. It's like, sir, you are in England. Why do you keep bringing this up? We've had multiple slurs. (laughs) I'm so glad it dials down after this book. I don't actually remember if it does. Well, I mean, in Matimeo, I remember that the sparrows are much, much less prevalent. Yeah, but that's because they're not, like... And a antagonistic force right. anymore. They're just kind of there. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, I had a note. Uh, how come Asmodeus hunts daily? Yeah. Like that's not how snakes work. Uh, snakes don't eat every day. Snakes eat uh like every few weeks to every couple of months because that their systems work like that and it is inefficient for them to eat that often because they'll just like overeat and maybe die um brian do your fucking snake research i really get the feeling that this is to kind of hype up asmodeus is like he's a dragon by this point like let's not beat around the bush asmodeus is a dragon so well, yeah, this is just like, like playing up like the dragon going out to steal sheep every day, making the farmers miserable. Like he's, and if he didn't hunt every day, they wouldn't be able to track him and they wouldn't be able to find his lair and he wouldn't be as big of a threat. But also it's lazy. It's lazy. Yes. But the, we also just spent like five minutes ranting about him using old outdated racist language. Although to be fair, Which in was, his era, it, it was outdated, still racist, but it was still racist. Yeah. Like, there's still no excuse. It was still racist. Yeah. <laughs> End of that chapter. Back to Clooney. Um, Clooney is pleasantly surprised to find out one of his three plants has already reached its goal. Kilconey and the rats have righted the hay cart and turned it into a siege tower. His plan Kilconey is simple. is really smart here. Yeah. I, like he he like all of the other like um like rats and like stoats are just trying to like they don't know what the fuck they're doing mm-hmm. and Kilkenny is just like oh yeah no I understand how levers and fulcrums work and we're gonna do this and just gets it right out of there yeah like although they do imply that a little bit of that was luck and he was just using the luck to his advantage but hey you know knowing when to use luck is intelligence as well yeah. um, hold on. 
Marley is in my room and I need to let him out. I did not know he was in here. I'll be right back. Marley, you sneaky boy. Marley is Squirrel's, Squirrel's adorable Kitten little greyhound. Wanna say hi? Say hello. Marley! Say hello. Marley boy! Say hello. Are you not gonna say hello? I can hear Marley. his tags. <laughs> Why do you do this? Speaking of stage fright. He's like parental, I am shy. I can hear I can hear my dogs outside. Oh, yeah, he's just screaming just to scream. <laughs> he's gone now. Okay, I'm sorry. Marley, uh, hang on. Oh no, I'm wrong. Marley's the cat. Vito's the dog. Yeah, Mar Marley is the cat. Vito's the dog. Yes, I'm sorry, everyone. I was wrong. Marley is an adorable cat. Vito is the adorable dog. <laughs> adorable. Hey, hey, an come asshole. On. <laughs> he's an asshole. <laughs> come on. Asshole. All right. I also put a note here that credit where credit is due, as much as Brian likes to just like bring up and drop plot points without much preamble, he's also really good at like pulling a Chekhov's gun. Like he will Honestly. pull out something that like was in the beginning of the book or like I did not think was important. He'll be like, hey, you know, now that we're in the end game, guess what's relevant again? Like he did this with the with the, the wood ship. Now he's doing this with the hay cart. I really like when he does this, like when he pulls out something that he set up at the beginning of the book. I know like some people say like, well, it's basic writing, but you know what? No, not everybody does this. And he does it really well when he is in the mood to do so. Hey, Kit. Yes. Deus Ex Cartna. <laughs> you missed it. So I had to do it. Yes. I told you I would sneak one into every book. I know. Also, <laughs> I am just very like ripping rest to these like vermin. The 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 death smell they unleashed by flipping the cart over. God, right from the rotting dead rats. Right. I mean, there weren't <laughs> too many. I don't think there were still s enough. Yeah, it would definitely be a smell, especially because like we're still like at the tail end of summer, so it's uh... and it rained and uh, yeah, and they're in a ditch yeah. where it's wet and gross and uh, yeah. Brian does love his ditches. Um, <laughs> his plan is simple. Attack the gatehouse as a diversion. Then he and a handpicked crew will take the tower, go to the least guarded portion of all, climb it, and kill the defenders. The defenders lay waste to the diversion troops, but Clooney is too pleased the plan is working to notice, moving forward with the siege tower and his crew. Cornflower, in charge of the kitchens, Makes soup and bread to take around to the defenders. She visits the moles we, first. We, we yet again have this really, really weird just interlude in the action mm -hmm. where just it, it undercuts and softens what's going on for no reason other than to do it. And like, yeah, okay, this time it has some utility, but it's still like, Brian, Brian, <laughs> sir. Focus, sir. You're not the one with the ADHD here. <laughs> um, sir, why why are you doing this? And again, it's like, it's a whole chapter where, like, she is ostensibly the focus character, and she barely gets to say anything. In fact... Lamp! I mean, like, 
Very much so. Like, it, it's terrible. She hardly says a single word. Let me see. I don't think she, Let's see. Yeah, like, we have her talk. She talks to the formal a little bit. And then... She, she says that she doesn't understand... Like, doesn't even say, but just thinks it. She doesn't understand him very well, but enjoys listening to him talk. So we get more of that quaint, like... Uh, uh, underclass person mm-hmm. who like speaks with an accent that okay, you don't here, understand. Here's the direct line: Cornflower was never quite sure of what Formal was saying, but she loved listening to his funny, countrified mole dialect. Countrified, oh yeah. Um, but like, 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 like yeah. People enjoy t- listening to me talk when I start talking in like a southern accent because it sounds. <laughs> oh nice. God, don't do that. They see me. It sounds nice, and it's very, very soft and very, very quaint. And a lot of times I'll start saying shit, and I'll start talking too fast, and people will be like, what the fuck is she going on about? What the fuck are they going on about? Listen. (laughs) You show me fucking respect. There's a reason that I don't talk with that accent that often, and it's because people don't respect me when I use it. Yeah, I was going to say, I've never heard you talk like that before, and it was just like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because you don't hear me talk like that that often. No, like my my mom like, had a friend growing up who was from the South. And most of the time you'd only hear it like very subtly until her mom would come to visit. And then they were off. And I would just sit there like, wah, 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 wah. You know, like I could not because they'd be going off together in a heavy Tennessee accent. And <laughs> it was just like, I am so lost. I think the only word I picked up there was pecan pie. You know <laughs> Yeah, he can't pass. <laughs> and I'm sorry, like, I, I only joke like that because every time she would come to visit us, like, she'd threaten my dad, like, you're going to have a heart attack if you keep stealing my pies. And dad's like, I don't care. <laughs> um, it's because we, listen, y'all don't put enough butter in things. <laughs> y'all don't put enough butter in things whatsoever. <laughs> listen, not all of or us Or brown be, oh, sugar. Crap, what's her name? Uh... Paula Dean? No. Paula Dean? Paula Dean, the queen of butter? I don't know. I don't know. She's not relevant anymore. I forgot her name. Also, like, your attempt at a southern accent is just so fucking Midwestern. It is. I know. I'm sorry. I could try and go a little more Minnesotan. That's in my blood, at least. (laughs) You go, like, the the fucking, like, middle America. Yeah. Um, oh, don't you know? Oh, don't you know? We gotta watch out. There's a big nor'wester coming in. Uh. <laughs> oh, do you want me to bring a salad to the potluck, Betty? Get your can of pop. <laughs> Jesus. I know none of my Minnesota relatives are gonna listen to it. They're all too old. But <laughs> like, I can feel, I can feel some. Of we them. definitely have some people from like Middle America. Yeah. <laughs> are gonna get mad at us i'm sorry they're I'm gonna get mad at me and not you because you're the one who lives in fucking wyoming yeah but i was born in california so i don't count <laughs> um you were born yeah but you were born in fresno Cal- uh, okay yes actually i was technically born in fresno but i lived in clovis and for some people that is a big it is an important distinction <laughs> if you live in california know you know there if, <laughs> if you know you know if you know you know it's, it's like the people in Fresno joke that, like, yeah, we might live in Fresno, but at least we don't live in Bakersfield. I don't understand anything you're saying. Like, Fresno is not popular. It's not a great city, 
But Bakersfield is essentially the armpit of California. Nobody likes living there. You drive past it on your way down south and you go, yeesh, and keep going. Anyway, <laughs> here I am just God. crapping all over poor Bakersfield. Sorry, Bakersfield. Um, so. What's funny the, is you're going to be having the people who come in and they're going to agree with you. Right. Like, yeah, that <laughs> like, place sucks. Again, like the ones who know, know. Um, anyway, <laughs> after she feeds the, the moles, she goes to visit the quietest portion of the walls. And by sheer dumb luck, she, uh, yeah. By sheer dumb luck, she and Brother Rufus repel the siege tower. First with an accidental scalding soup to a rat's eyes, then Cornflower reacts on reflex and hurls the lantern onto the tower, setting on fire quite nicely. Um, like somehow rolling a net 20 on reflexes, yeah, like, says Kit in the notes. Yeah, like, okay, like, I want to read it out because, like, this line is really good. Um, let's see. Brother Rufus held out his mug. He watched gratefully through the cloud of steam that arose from the jug. Mmm, that smells good. Vegetable soup, my favorite. Cornflower was not listening. She was staring open-mouthed across Brother Rufus's shoulder. The soup was overflowing from the mug and splattering on the stones as she continued to pour. Across the top of the parapet, a ramshackled wooden platform had appeared as if from nowhere. Perched on top of it, ready to spring, was a villainous-looking rat with a cutlass clenched between his teeth. Cornflower shrieked aloud. More by accident than design, Brother Rufus spun around and sent the scalding contents of his mug splashing full into the rat's eyes. With a piercing wail of agony, the rat fell from the top of the platform. Scarcely aware of what she was doing, Cornflower threw the lantern. It shattered on top of the siege tower, drenching the dead wood and lamp oil. Instantly, the flames licked hungrily over the platform, turning it into an inferno. Very good. Because they used shitty dead wood yeah i mean it was so it'll catch it was conveniently there too so they were making they were making good use of their resources it was just unfortunately not very good resources new because um, it was very very probably very dry and very old wood yeah and when you use that to build something it's unless if it's hardwood mm -hmm. it's not going to be very very good because mm -hmm. hardwood will last like you can take some of it off because like the outer layer will get all fucked up mm -hmm. but what's underneath that is still good yeah that's still good wood yeah we don't get that anymore because lumber companies <laughs> um listen you see lumber companies freaking like you, you a lot of america is like second or third growth because of that mm -hmm. like uh the south is not supposed to be a uh, giant chunks of pine forest it's supposed to be savannah mm-hmm um, that's why Savannah's called Savannah <laughs> in Georgia. <laughs> um, but, like, a lot of the times, like, logging companies will go and they'll cut down, like, first, like, first growth trees that are all hardwoods. Like, they're old and, like, they shouldn't be doing that. Because <laughs> it's not sustainable. Clooney quite loses his mind for a minute, half attacking his own rats in a frenzy of rage over the fire. Darkclaw and Fangburn manage to pull Clooney back just in time as the tower collapses. Just... And then he just kind of loses his mind. Yeah. Uh, Corn and also, mm, man, Holocaust sure was a word I... that Brian chose to describe the fire. I have seen fires, like big fires. I have seen them described as a Holocaust before as well. Um, I think it's one of I those think... cases where like a Holocaust could mean like a huge 
you know, terrible fire. But just like over time, it has fallen out of use because of its connotation to the Holocaust. Well, also, I would have thought by the 80s, it would have fallen out of use like that as well. Just because like, that's after World War and like, we're getting into like the end of the Cold War as well. Yeah, in the 80s like that. Yeah, so like you would think that that would have been like, like not a word that he would have chosen to use. But he does. He sure does, and I hate it. Again, I feel like this is first book syndrome. His editors haven't really started to buckle down hard on him yet. Um, you know. Because they're like, ah, oh, this book's not going to do that well. We don't have to do And then it did. And then it did. And they're like, ah. <laughs> um, Fuck. Cornflower is hailed as hero. End of chapter. Or not end of chapter, but by the morning, the fire is out, having only singed some metal ends. The abbot and Cornflower are grateful it didn't reach the trees. Both sides know not to use fire. It leads to death for both sides. Um, but yeah, like, Clooney completely just goes off his rocker here. He is- He's, like, talking to himself and, like, just muttering and saying things. And his captains are, like, they don't understand what any of it means. I want to know what the fuck he was saying. Yeah, like, what was he doing that was making his captain so unsettled? Or saying, rather. Um, we know what he was doing. They described that. Yeah. But I want to know what the fuck he was saying. Right. And then, um, and then, like, the comment about, like, both sides not to use fire. It leads to death from both sides. I wonder if this is some kind of anti-war sentiment. Or, like, animal Geneva Convention. What's a war crime if there's technically no large-scale wars? This world only knows raiders and skirmishes. Sure, Clooney calls this a war, but it's only a siege of one abbey. The only abbey. True, but all the same. This whole world is so oddly insular, a world that lives as a stagnant yet flowing fairy tale. Yeah, and it's it's really, really weird as well, like, especially considering, like, and I know Mossflower was written after this, but, like, in Mossflower, both Bane and Sarmina consider using fire to burn the forest down. Mm-hmm. They are two separate like Bane repre- Bane and Sarmina represent two separate types of bad guys. Bane is much closer to Clooney than Sarmina is. Yeah. As a like villain and a leader. And the squirrels shoot flaming arrows at the old castle. Okay, I think in their defense, um, the castle is not in Mossflower. It is in its own kind of floodplain area. But and the which... trees do come very close to the walls. They do. Um, but I feel like this was before, like, yeah, like, there was the coat, not the coat, the Corim, but they still weren't, it wasn't like when Redwall gets established and they start to, like, really identify as, like, a community. Like, yeah, they were all living there, but they weren't really a community yet. Mm-hmm. And now, like, you have Redwall, you have the community and the, like, air quotes, country of Mossflower. Um, so, like, by this time, these people have had a chance to really establish a society, establish a, not really a country, but again, like, a place that is theirs. This is their home, their place, and they do not want to burn it down. Whereas by, um, the time we read Mossflower, they were ready to burn it down just to get rid of Sarmina. Because they were done. It was like, if if we have to leave, we will leave. But we're not going to let her have... Mossflower. 
Yeah, that's fair. Um, um, it's still weird. It's still weird because what I want because of the amount of time that's between them, I want to know what happened that led to this. Yeah, that led to this idea that fire is not an okay thing to use. Not just that, but like because it's so heavily implied that like it's been peaceful in Mossflower for generations too. Yeah. So, hmm. This could also just be a couple of sheltered, you know, people who've lived in this peaceful time having to come to grips with, you know, the war and the reality that they're facing. Um, Maybe. Anyway, and then I also like the idea of, like, what is mouse war? Like, what is war crimes when you don't have wars? Like, there is no Geneva Convention in this universe. There's no Geneva, you know. Um, but I think something could still be considered a war crime because it is a crime you're committing during wartime. Yeah. And a lot of what Clooney does specifically it yeah. is war crimes. Yeah. And I am not going to let them completely off the hook. Um, the, the Red Wallers also commit war crimes. Yeah. Uh, Against pe- their because... own people, in a sense. Yeah, and the thing is, like, this is the thing about war. If you're in war, you're going to commit war crimes. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. Mm -hmm. If you don't want to commit war crimes, don't do a war. (laughs) Don't do a violence. Because, don't do a violence. Because uh, torture is a war crime. Mm -hmm. Or specific kinds of torture. Because they had to get nuanced about it. Mm -hmm. But... Torture, in the broad strokes, is a war crime. What are things that are considered torture? Not feeding your enemies. Or not feeding them something nutritious, Mm -hmm. in particular. Not giving them a proper place to sleep is considered a war crime. You know, things like that. What do countries do when they're in war? All those Those things. things. And then there's the big obvious ones where, like, you kill someone who is surrendering, you know? Yeah. Like, those are the big obvious ones. It's like, you shouldn't do that. That's a fucking war crime. But then there's the much smaller war crimes that are just as bad in their own ways. Mm-hmm. And, like, they all commit fucking war crimes. Yeah. If you don't want to commit a war crime, don't do a war. Anyway, back at the, back at the end of the chapter, Cornflower's back in the kitchen. And I hate this line, last night's heroine, this morning's cook. Like, I'm not saying, like, being a cook, being a housemaker is not bad. But she's not given any agency. She's not given a chance to really talk. Like, we get her thoughts, but she doesn't speak. She's a fucking lamp, and I hate it. I want her to stop being a lamp. Mm -hmm. It's like, there's a good character here, I can see it. But she just isn't given the chance. And it just gets worse. It does. Ugh, we'll get into that one. Matthias and Logalog enter the lair to look for Guosim, who fell out of sight down the entry slope. They see the place has been used by serpents for years, thanks to odd carvings. Do you want to jump in there and talk about the reptiles? Okay, so, yeah, I do. Okay, (laughs) so, fucking, what the fuck? So, the way it's described is they're, like, odd and weird like basically describing them as being an alien language almost like that's the vibe that it puts off and it's got some kind of racist undertones there because it's like this is a different quote-unquote like race 
of of people like the the reptiles right um but it also kind of like feels a little anti-semitic i didn't pick up on that because like for me i was thinking more of like early pictish or like runic carvings is kind of what i was thinking of um again because like this is ostensibly supposed to be england sort of so i was thinking of more like the england english kind of carvings because you did, yeah, you did was, get carvings from the Picts and, you know, the Celts. My, my thing is, is, like, anytime there's reptiles and they have a weird language, like, you've seen Hebrew before, right? Yes. Hebrew has, it's, it's a oh, language that's yes. made up, like, it's not, it's, it's a, it's uses, like, a lot of, like, symbols. It's not a hieroglyph language, but. It's very pretty. Like, the way, it's very pretty. And the way that this was just kind of, like, reading it, I was just like, this feels bad i did not pick up on that yeah yeah i think i'm a little bit more keyed into it because i don't know how many friends you have who are jewish but i have quite a few who are or are turning towards judaism like can is turning towards judaism yeah and so like i'm a little bit more keyed in (laughs) to this just because like i i don't know if maybe i'm overthinking it or um i'm just sensitive to it or what but like this is one of those things when like reptilian imagery is involved and it is called odd and weird and said reptilians are typically evil he also in some way especially he also is a dragon stereotype who sleeps on a horde of stolen goods and dead things so yes yeah i can see where you're coming from the 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 conspiracy of a jewish cabal is a very old one. Mm-hmm. Very and old. this is also, if you hear anybody say the word cabal about something, don't trust them. <laughs> Please don't. Unless if they are using it super specifically as we in are reference now. to a, yeah, like using it to explain this kind of thing, or they're using it to describe something fictitious, mm-hmm. but does not have connections to anti-Semitism. It makes me so mad, like, because, like, the reptilian conspiracy theory, like, if it wasn't so anti-Semitic, it would be funny. It would be fun. But, like, no, it's incredibly racist, so it can't be fun. Mm-hmm. Thanks, assholes. Well, it's not racist. It's anti-Semitic. Anti-Semitic, sorry. There's a difference. Like, um, it, it, it's weird, but there is a difference between being racist and being anti-Semitic because, like... Yeah. You are... Like, because it, I am not Jewish. Mm-hmm. This is my understanding for the listeners. This is my understanding of how this works. And if I am incorrect, please correct me. I would rather learn than continue to be incorrect. From what I am aware of, depending on who you talk to and where their family is from, being Jewish is both a cultural and a racial identity. Ashkenazi Jewish people, that is a racial identity. I don't know, I don't think I know anybody who is uh, Ashkenazi Jew, Mm -hmm. but that is, from what I know, is considered a racial Jewish identity, whereas, like, you can be culturally Jewish, and a lot of people that I do know are culturally Jewish, or you have converted, so you're not culturally or racially Jewish, you are new and 
learning and that is important and good, but it's you are coming into this from a different like cultural background mm-hmm. type of vibe. So it is complex, it is nuanced and if again if I am incorrect or if I have if I have misinformation, please correct me. Mm-hmm. I would rather learn, but that is what I understand. So the way that the 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 like reptiles are set up in this book specifically, I'm not going to talk about future books. We haven't gotten there <laughs> yet. Brian and Brian is super inconsistent about this shit from what I remember. Mm-hmm. Um take a shot. <laughs> <laughs> I said from what I remember and that we're going to uh, get into it. And then we're going to get into it. Uh yeah. Uh please drink water. Um so we need to start like we need to actually write down the drinking game so we can go over yeah. it. Anyway, but yeah, so like the way that the reptiles are represented in this book is being very like racially and um culturally like just from what we have seen of them, we only see the one and just like it's weird because he's the only one that's there, mm-hmm. but it's shown that there's it's like it's like Julian He's like the last one. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really weird. It, it's it's kind of like this is the end of that like mythical age in like fair like in in legends and fairy tales from Europe. Mm-hmm. The last dragon being killed or the last of like the the old knights, things like that. Like we're getting the last of everything in this book. Yeah. Definitely has that vibe. Um but to get back to that, uh, Logalog and Matthias decide to split up and carve arrows so they do not get lost. As Matthias explores, he finds an anteroom full of shed snakeskins and is visibly unsettled. For listening. If you like this podcast, please be sure to follow us on Twitter at Abbey Archives. And if you'd like to read along with us, join our Discord, linked in the description below. You can also follow our parent podcast at Hope's Hearth Pod. Remember to wash your paws like good dibbins and take care of yourselves. Bye!